I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Misconduct, a true crime podcast. I'm Eileen, and as always, joining me is Colleen. How are you doing, Colleen? I am good. How are you doing? I am good, and I just apologize if you hear any ambient rain noises. We're getting some wet weather here in California, which is good, but uh, yeah. But it's a little disturbing when we're trying to record. Exactly. <laughs> um, we have some more five-star reviews to shout out. Uh Thank you to Nibinator, Oflick, Sasha917, and Nora. Uh, thank you for all the love. We really enjoyed reading all of your feedback. Um, and if you have a minute and you're feeling generous, please leave us a review. Like we say all the time, you know, reviews help us out and they also help other people find our podcast. So it kind of is good all around. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And uh, this week we wanted to give a shout out to a podcast, Already Gone. Already Gone features older cases and lesser-known stories from the Great Lakes region and beyond. Nina is great. You should really check out the podcast. I really enjoy it. We also recently started our Misconduct Facebook group, and you can search for us, and one of our admins will add you as soon as possible. We're kind of hoping that this can be a central place to discuss cases, or if you have any questions about the episodes, you can ask us, and we can talk about it further over there. One more thing before we get started. We recently started our Patreon page. Um, you can find us at patreon.com slash uh, forward slash, excuse me, misconduct podcast. If you want to support the show and have a few bucks to spare, uh, please consider donating. We would really appreciate it. We are offering some really fun rewards like stickers, mugs, bonus content, and early access to episodes. And we also want to shout out the people who have joined our Patreon. Uh, thank you to Lisa, Brooke, Allie, Olivia, Josette, Sarah, and Shelly for your Patreonship. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yes, thank you guys so much. Uh, you have no idea how much it touched us that you did that. So with that housekeeping out of the way, let's get to this week's case. Uh, so this week we are discussing the San Mateo slasher. So when it comes to Bay Area serial killers... Most people, like me, immediately think of the obvious one, the Zodiac Killer. Uh, however, around the same time, there was another serial killer operating in, around, in and around the Bay Area. In 1976, five young women and teenagers were found murdered in various areas of San Mateo County in the span of four months. The media dubbed the culprit the San Mateo Slasher and referred to the killings as the Gypsy Hill Murders named for the neighborhood the victims lived in or around. Law enforcement hunted him 
in the hopes that he would be apprehended before he could kill again. And the women in the area were just terrified they would be next. The only connections between the cases uh, was some forensic evidence and that all the women looked extremely similar. However, with only few leads and witnesses to the crimes and no new murders, the Gypsy Hill murders went cold and the San Mateo slasher became the stuff of local urban legend. In 2014, almost 40 years after the murders, the FBI established a task force whose sole purpose was to reopen this investigation. DNA evidence that linked the San Mateo slasher victims was also matched to a murder in Reno, Nevada. This episode, we are discussing who is responsible for the murders and how law enforcement closed this cold case. So San Mateo County lies south of San Francisco. It encompasses most of the peninsula. Uh, Silicon Valley actually starts at the southern part of the county. So currently in present day, San Mateo County is now known for you know, crazy high rent. Mm -hmm. Um, And it houses some of the campuses for some of the biggest tech companies and venture capitalist firms in the country. A lot of San Mateo County, a lot of the rest of it is made up of suburban neighborhoods uh, that are home to people who commute into Silicon Valley or up into San Francisco for work. In 1976, Veronica Cassio was an 18 year old living with her parents in the town of Pacifica Pacifica is a smaller surfing town um, along the Pacific Ocean in between San Francisco and Half Moon Bay. Veronica was last seen waiting for a bus that was headed towards San Bruno at about 6.10 p.m. on the evening of January 7th. She was going to a friend's birthday party, and when she failed to arrive, her friends called her parents, and her parents called the police. The search began immediately, and law enforcement tried to trace her whereabouts starting from where she was last seen. Unfortunately, the next morning, a 16-year-old boy was walking along the Sharp Park golf course and stumbled across Veronica's body in a creek bed. Uh, She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed upwards of 30 times in the face, neck, and torso. Mm -hmm. Police continued their search in an effort to establish how Veronica got from the bus stop where she was last seen to the golf course. One arrest was made in the beginning of the investigation. The police arrested a transient man who'd been seen in the area, but he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. Police didn't have long before they had another murder on their hands. Uh, A couple of weeks after Veronica was found, Tatiana Marie Blackwell, who went by Tanya, was a 14-year-old living in the Gypsy Hills neighborhood of Pacifica. She left her house to run to 7-Eleven and never came back. Her family wasn't immediately worried because she had been known to take off for a couple of days before she had a history of running away. Hmm. But when several days went by and no one had heard from her, her family reported her missing. The police investigated, but there seemed to be no trace of Tanya. Her body was found months later on June 6th by teenagers, again, just not far away in the Gypsy Hills neighborhood, um, covered with leaves. She had been stabbed multiple times, and her injuries were consistent with Veronica's. Uh, Even though she had been missing for months, law enforcement believes that she was killed right after her disappearance. Uh, This would make her the second victim. And due to the state of her remains, it's not known if she was also sexually assaulted. Two weeks after Tanya went missing, a 17-year-old Paula Louise Baxter was having car trouble on February 2nd, 1976. She was known as a kind, warm girl who was a junior at Cappuccino High School in San Bruno. She was a member of the high school's award-winning majorette team 
and she also played the flute. Uh, Her nude body was found two days later on February 4th in the town of Milbrae behind a church of Latter-day Saints in a grove of eucalyptus trees. Her body had been stabbed four times and she had head trauma. And like Veronica, she had been sexually assaulted. Forensic evidence found at the scene was linked to forensic evidence found at Veronica's crime scene. And with two bodies forensically linked, found within a month of each other, police in San Mateo County were working overtime to try and find a break in the case. An article ran on March 19, 1976. A spokesperson for the five-person task force, which was made up of police officers and county sheriffs, said that they had basically hit a wall. Uh, Milbury Sergeant Ron Kane was quoted saying, We are no further ahead today than we were when the murders were committed. We have talked to a lot of people and a lot of agencies, but still we have gotten nowhere. They also said that they spent a lot of the last two months running down dead-end leads and looking into unsolved murders across the western United States. But with no new leads, all the police could do was wait for a break in the case or for the San Mateo slasher to strike again. Unfortunately, police weren't waiting long because 10 days after the article ran... Uh, April 1st, Denise Lampe was found stabbed to death in a parking lot. Uh, she was found in the Saramonte Shopping Center in Daly City. Uh, she was found by a security guard and her friend. Now, her friend had come to the shopping center looking for her when Denise failed to meet her at her house at 9.30 that night. The two girls worked at the shopping center and had planned to meet up at Lampe's home in Broadmoor, which is a neighborhood near Daly City. When her friend arrived at the Lampe residence and Denise didn't show up, she became extremely worried and went to the shopping center because she knew Denise had been there earlier that day. Uh, The security guard and her friend found her blue 1964 Mustang still parked in the parking lot, and Denise was in the front seat. She had been stabbed over 20 times and was only dead for about 30 minutes when she was found. Police did not immediately announce a connection between Denise's case and Veronica's and Louise's cases because the crime scenes were obviously different. Denise was killed in a high-traffic area. She was not sexually assaulted, and she also wasn't a high school student, unlike Veronica and Louise. And even though the crime was inconsistent, Denise bore a striking resemblance to the other girls. And honestly, all these girls look extremely similar. Mm -hmm. I'm going to post a picture on Instagram and on our website so you can see, but I mean, there are some pictures where they could kind of be the same person. Right. So again, police didn't have much time to investigate this murder before another victim was discovered. Carol Booth was a 26-year-old housewife who was reported missing on March 15th, and her body was found on May 4th, which is a little over a month after Denise Lampe. Uh, Carol was described as someone who could have passed as a teenager, and again, on the picture, you'll see that is totally true. She's 26, but if you told me she was, like, 18... She would totally pass for 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, she looks a lot like the other victims and was last seen on March 15th walking home from the bus stop in South San Francisco. She was known to take a shortcut that passed by the Kaiser Hospital that is off of the main road, and this shortcut takes you through a more isolated area. Her body was found in a shallow grave in that exact same area where the shortcut is that she was known to take, and it was just hidden in the brush. The investigation continued with no new leads, and they now had five victims. The police collected hair samples from over 200 men to try to match the hair found on uh, Veronica Casio and Paula Baxter, 
but came up empty. Police even considered that because the victims were stabbed repeatedly that this could be a reemergence of the Zodiac Killer. Fingerprints left at Denise uh, Lampe's car didn't yield any hits in local or state databases. In a 1986 article that was checking in on the 10-year-old cold cases, investigators were quoted saying, unless someone comes in and throws themselves at us, there's not much we can do. In another check-in article for the 20-year anniversary of the murders in 1996, investigators discussed the possibility of reviewing the case for DNA evidence. While in 1996 DNA techniques weren't as advanced as they are now, testing DNA would have potentially given law enforcement new leads. Even though the idea was thrown out there, the case remained cold and DNA tests were not performed. So in 2014, the 40-year anniversary of the killings was fast approaching and law enforcement didn't have any more leads than they did in 1976. In March of 2014, the FBI held a press conference in San Mateo County where they revealed that they were forming a task force and reopening the investigation into the murders. At the press conference, it was announced that the murders were being reopened because there was a DNA link between five San Mateo killings and a 1976 murder of a woman in Reno, Nevada. Now, Reno and the Bay Area are directly connected by the 80 freeway and separated by just about 200 miles. On a good day, it can take you like three and a half hours to get there. Right. Uh, Michelle Mitchell was the woman who was murdered in Reno. She was 19 years old and a nursing student at the University of Nevada, Reno. She had called her mom to tell her that she was having car trouble. And by the time her mom got to her car to help her, Michelle was nowhere to be found. Witnesses say that they saw her with a man shortly before she disappeared and her body was discovered about a block away in a garage and her hands were bound and she had been stabbed and she was discovered by the people who owned the home uh, when they went into their garage large footprints that were assumed to belong to a male were also found near the body in 2014 people familiar with the case were stunned to hear that an unidentified person might be responsible for michelle's murder because a woman named kathy woods confessed in 1979 to quote killing a girl named michelle in reno and had been imprisoned for that murder for over 30 years oh. in 1979 kathy woods was a patient at a psychiatric hospital in louisiana she confessed to the staff that she had murdered somebody in reno in 1976 and the staff contacted the reno police they immediately flew out to interview kathy at the hospital and she ended up being found guilty on first-degree murder charges for Michelle's death in December 1980. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, this brings up the question of LWAP, or life in prison without parole, mm. sentences uh, for mentally ill people. It, yeah. it, mm. Well, I mean, I, either way, I mean, they belong in a, in a mental health facility. Um, somebody like her especially right um i believe they need they need you know mental help and um you know sticking them in prison and life without parole i don't know i just don't know if that's necessarily i don't think that them. that's a good way to help them and they won't be rehabilitated if that's what prison is supposedly for um obviously she needs help if she did it um she needs help and she was in a hospital and taking her from that hospital and putting her into jail. I just don't think is 
Yeah, unfortunately, LWAP sentences aren't really help, I guess, no. you know? Yeah, especially for those who are, I mean, she was in a psychiatric hospital. Um, she needed to be in a psychiatric hospital, not in, in prison. And I'm not saying she should be out or, you know, if, if she's guilty or something like that. Like, no, I don't want them, you know, they need to serve, be out of the public, I suppose, you know, um, for safety reasons. But, yeah, I just, life without parole for a mentally ill person like that is, you know, not It's not prison. something I can get on board with. Not um, really, yeah. In 1985, the Nevada Supreme Court ordered a new trial for Kathy, and that December she was found guilty of first-degree murder again and resentenced, basically, to life in prison without parole. Now, since her first conviction, Kathy Woods has been in prison, and then in 2013, a man named Rodney L. Halbauer was paroled from a Nevada state prison. A condition of his parole was to submit a DNA sample to a state database and then he was transferred to Oregon, where he was going to stand trial for an unrelated attempted murder charge. In February 2014, which is one month before the FBI announced its task force looking into the San Mateo slasher killings, a public defender in Nevada filed a motion on behalf of Kathy Woods seeking a DNA test on a cigarette that was found at the crime scene of Michelle Mitchell's murder. That DNA test showed that the evidence left on the cigarette matched DNA left at two of the Gypsy Hill murders, hmm. therefore connecting Michelle's death and the five unsolved murders in the Bay Area. Less than a month later, later, the FBI announced the task force and was joined by Reno investigators to put a name to the DNA. Now that law enforcement has a new lead, I'm sure you're wondering what happened to Kathy, and I wanted to go through her trial and incarceration really quickly. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Kathy was in a Louisiana mental facility, and she was there on an involuntary psychiatric hold. She had previously been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and the details that Kathy gave to investigators during her interrogation were all public knowledge that had been reported in the press. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the case itself had been, had received extensive coverage. The only connection between Michelle and Kathy is that Kathy just happened to be living in Reno at the time of the murder. At the time of the confession, Kathy was being treated for schizophrenia, thought disorder, and auditory hallucinations. However, the staff decided to contact the police in Reno anyways uh, once she gave her confession. Mm. Woods also did not match the description of the person last seen with Michelle. Uh, The person last seen with Michelle was supposedly a man who was around six feet tall 
uh, Kathy is significantly shorter, so it was unlikely that she was, you know, mistaken for a man, right? Physically, she didn't fit the description. Her foot size also did not match the shoe print found at the crime scene. Now, regardless of this evidence, which showed that Kathy was unlikely to be telling the truth about committing the crime, police and prosecutors decided to put her on trial anyways. Uh, They did not record her confession, and they didn't have her write her confession out and sign an affidavit. Instead, the police memorialized what she had said and then used that to arrest Kathy. That's just sickening to me. I I can't believe that. I mean... Oh, it's just cutting corners to try and close a case. It's just to close a case. That's all it is. got to close a case. You have all these things showing that this, you know, she was last seen with a six-foot-tall man. Eh, well, close enough. Or the shoes didn't matter. Eh, well, close enough. She said she did it. She's schizophrenic. And in a hospital. And... You know, and la- she's in a hospital against her will. Right. Yeah. Involuntarily. And you're just, but I think, you know, we tend to just, you know, it's all about great case closed, done. This person's saying they did it. Well, they had, you know, a horrific murder of a, of a girl who was, you know, a nursing student and young. And so they have a, you know, an urgency, right. To close it. Yeah. That's what bothers me though, because it just, okay, great. This, this narrative works, I suppose, but the real killer is still out there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're ignoring big things. I mean, it could be one thing if, I don't know, this gets me a little irritated clearly, but it would be one thing if it was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I could see how you would, you know, and of course, go talk to her. So you used to have somebody saying, yeah, I killed this person. You'd, it warrants a conversation. Fair enough. But once you see everything and compare it to the evidence that you do have and the fact that she's schizophrenic. And she she's having hallucinations and thought uh-huh. disorder. And, you know, she was in the area where this murder was highly covered, you know, highly publicized, covered in the news extensively mm-hmm. and can't give investigators any details of the crime Other that than... weren't reported in the news. Right. So it's one thing if she comes out with, you know, information that was not released to the public. But right. that wasn't the case here. Right. No. But, you know, I think it's just this push to close cases, close cases, close cases. And that's how you get these wrongful convictions and these Richard Rosarios and these, you know, people who they. Dusty Turner. Dusty Turner. Yeah. I mean, great case closed. She said she did it. Done. And and that's just not what our system's supposed to work like. I think it's not about closing cases. It's about bringing people to justice and making sure we never put somebody innocent behind bars. So this next part will probably make you even more mad. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. During the trial, prosecutors, uh, in their theory of the crime, painted Kathy as a lesbian who killed Michelle in a fit of rage after she rejected her sexual advances. Mm-hmm. This is even though Kathy said she was heterosexual and there was no evidence that she was gay. And I mean, that's kind of besides the point. But at this time, mm-hmm. uh, this was a time when homosexuality was still kind of widely seen as immoral. We're talking like late 70s. Right. Um, it had only been removed from the list of psychiatric disorders a couple of years earlier. And Kathy would go on to spend 35 years in prison before she was released in September 2014 when law enforcement, you know, they announced the new suspect and the DNA evidence match. In 2016, Kathy Woods made moves to sue Nevada for wrongful conviction. Good. <laughs> I know. I, I agree. I mean, that's like, yeah, you should, because they fucked Those up. Those murderous lesbians, they, let me tell you, you know, when we get... <laughs> I mean, it just, and again, they make a, 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 and to sort of circle back, a, 
So they made up their own narrative of, of the crime that happened with Richard, too. Richard Rosario. I mean, they just made up the narrative. And when this narrative would play well and with motive. the opinions of the time. Right, exactly. And again, it's just about closing and winning a case. Police close the case. The prosecutors win the case. You sent an innocent person to prison. And and I, and I, I don't know. I hate to say what's worse. but And then you have the actual killer running free. You can't tell me that none of them you know, didn't at all at once think this is probably not the person. (laughs) Right. Like maybe we have the wrong girl, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe this isn't the person who killed her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, it's like, I don't know if I don't, I don't think I could ever do that. And so anyways, but um, yeah, those murderous lesbian motives. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just such a, like a sensationalized theory and it just, it kind of, it's just gross all around. It is. And like you said, back then, I'm sure it worked, you know? So on September 8th, 2014, now 66-year-old Rodney Halbauer was officially named as a person of interest in the murder of Michelle Mitchell and five women in San Mateo County. In the 35 years between the Gypsy Hill murders and the DNA match in 2014, Halbauer had been in and out of prison all over the western United States. At the time of the Gypsy Hill murders, Halbauer was out of jail pending an appeal for a rape charge in Reno. Rodney Halbauer was born June 27, 1948, in Wisconsin. And by his own account, his first experience with law enforcement was when he was caught breaking windows in a cottage when he was about nine years old. When he was 13, he was arrested for wrecking a stolen car, and he was detained in a juvenile facility. He escaped from there and was actually caught when he was picked up by police committing more crimes, and then he was detained again. And this cycle of crime, arrest, and escape would be a prominent pattern in his life. Hmm. His arrest for stealing a car when he was 13 in 1964, uh, after that he was arrested and convicted of breaking and entering in 1965. He served five years and was released in 1970 when he was promptly convicted of robbery, sentenced to four more years in prison Hmm. in Michigan. And he escaped from prison that year. While he was escaped, he had a daughter and then was rearrested. And he was once again paroled in 1975, and this is when he headed to Nevada. In December of 1975, Halbauer was arrested for the rape of a blackjack dealer and was promptly freed on bail pending an appeal. He then drove 200 miles to San Mateo County and spent the next four months murdering Veronica Cassio, Tanya Blackwell, Paula Baxter, Denise Lampe and Carol Booth. Sad. In May 1976, Halbauer was sentenced to life in prison for the rape of the Reno blackjack dealer, but he escaped in June of 1977. (laughs) He fled to Michigan where he kidnapped his then seven-year-old daughter, and once he was arrested, he was returned to Nevada in exchange for going back to Nevada. The kidnapping charges and the custodial interference charges in Michigan were dropped. Hmm. He stayed in prison in Nevada for 10 years until 1986 when he and another inmate escaped together and fled to Oregon. <laughs> escaped. Sorry. I, I, it's, it's, it's almost comical. It is. I, yeah. Escaped again. Okay. <laughs> uh, he drove a stolen car to Jackson, Oregon, where he kidnapped, raped, and attempted to kill a woman. <sighs> And in 1987, an Oregon jury convicted Halbar of rape and attempted murder. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but he was returned to Nevada to continue serving his sentence for his 1975 rape. 
it's getting hard to keep all of his crime straight. Right. In 1987, Halbauer was evaluated by a psychiatrist in prison. Uh, he was described as an intelligent man who had a severe personality disorder and a propensity towards criminal behavior. Halbauer got a high school diploma in prison, but he didn't take any classes beyond that while he was incarcerated. And even though he had no marketable job skills or any higher education, the psychiatrist reported that Halbauer indicated that he feels, quote, very accomplished and that he should actually be the one teaching the classes. He also aspired to be a famous artist or rock star. The report finished off by saying Halbauer's life is, quote, replete with poor impulse control, narcissism, and grandiosity. So this is somebody who should never be allowed out on bail. Well, consider the gravity of his uh, crimes and also his background. I don't know if he should have been out on bail at all. I mean, maybe he shouldn't be in prison, but, you know, you can make the argument maybe he should be in getting, you know, mental help. But he definitely should not be out on bail, uh, you know, awaiting sentencing for some of the crimes that he's committed and just shows that he will escape prison and commit crimes while he's escaped. Right. Yeah. And uh, how many, you know, keep track there. How many escapes did he have? I mean, like you said, it's almost comical. It's like. I think he's just someone who's like slipping through the cracks almost in the criminal justice system. Like he should have been red flagged. Right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Not good for bail. Yeah, not good for bail. Because, I mean, they can determine whether, you know, you're, you know, a flight risk and things like that. Um, And that determines, well, bail and whether they're going to give it to you or not. Um, So that's, yeah, like you said, considering his other, well, crimes and he just should have, like you said, he shouldn't have been out on bail. That's insane to me. So he spent his time in prison from 1987 to 2013 in Nevada. In 2013, Nevada paroled him so he could be sent to Oregon to serve his prison sentence for that 1986 rape and attempted murder. And once he was transferred, Oregon law enforcement collected his DNA and submitted it to the national DNA database that investigators used to look into cold cases. At the same time this was happening, Kathy Wood's lawyer had submitted the review of DNA evidence in the case of Michelle Mitchell, the DNA left on the cigarette that was left at the scene of Michelle Mitchell's murder matched Halbauer, and then he was named as a suspect. So I just think that the timing of, you know, the public defender for Kathy Woods Mm -hmm. and the DNA being entered into the database is just, I mean, it's fate. It's, it's a crazy coincidence in my opinion. Yeah. That that just happened to work out. You know, what if they had tested the DNA on the cigarette before his DNA had been put in the system? Right. It's, yeah, good point. Yeah, it's the universe coming together, I guess. Yeah, I guess, after all those prison escapes. Yeah. Uh, In January 2015, Halbauer was formally charged in Northern California for two of the Gypsy Hill murders, Veronica Cassio and Paula Baxter. Uh, These were the two victims that had DNA evidence left at the crime scene although he's considered to be responsible for the others as well. Mm-hmm. He was transferred from Nevada to Redwood City, which is the county seat for San Mateo County, to await trial. Uh, he was arraigned on July, in July 2016 after he was kicked out of the courtroom for refusing to recognize his attorney and speaking directly to the court in a disruptive manner. Oh, my gosh. After he was removed, his lawyer entered a not guilty plea for him, Uh, He also petitioned to fire his attorney and represent himself, but his request was denied because he was ruled incompetent to represent himself. He was ruled 
competent to stand trial with an attorney representing him in July 2016, and he's currently in jail awaiting trial in Redwood City. Now, many of the victims' friends are well into their 50s and their 60s now, and many of the parents have passed away and never got any closure in their daughter's murders. While I was researching the case, I saw that Paula Baxter's dad died in 2006, which is just eight years before Hal Bauer's name was made public. And he lived to be fairly old. And while I'm glad the cases have been solved, it's hard to think about the family members who spent the rest of their lives wondering what happened to their loved ones. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, This case ended up having a lot more twists and turns than I expected. And unfortunately, it's just another example of a criminal falling through the cracks in the criminal justice system. And five girls in San Mateo were murdered because of it. Mm -hmm. And this case is unique because it includes a wrongful conviction where law enforcement created a narrative to fit a theory that would lead to the conviction of Kathy Woods, and she paid the price for over 30 years. And those five girls, you know, and the girls paid the price. It shows just, I, it, the thing that just really gets under my skin is it shows how closing cases seem to take priority over finding out what actually happened. Kathy should have never even been considered, and I'm surprised they even could have taken, with her mental state, that they could take a confession of course, they didn't write it down or record it or anything like that. But the fact that that was all even considered um, and just this is what happens. And then he was out running, you know, running amok, for the lack of a better term, because you wanted to put, you know, this wild lesbian away. And this is Musa who done it. But you can't tell me that anybody involved in putting her away did not like at all go. Yeah, this isn't the person that did it. But we're just doing this just to close the case. I mean, you have the prosecutors, the police, that all had a hand in that. And then he's out running around killing. And that's on you. You know, you could have been looking for the real guy. And it, and instead, you're just going to put this person away because washes my hands of it. And, <laughs> and I'm done. And it just, I'm sorry to get a little, you know, it just makes me so angry I'd be about it. But in it is an interesting case, case, like you said. I mean, it's, this case highlights a lot of, you know, the frustrations I have with our criminal justice system, I think. Mm -hmm. So it gets me a little, little angry too. Hot under the collar. Um, But it is a really interesting case because like you said, you have, yeah, just um, a wrongful conviction in there too, you know, and yeah, police just tend to, I remember hearing um, when detectives are working a case, they will, um, you know, look at evidence and things like that. So don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing all cops and all police or anything but they have a narrative and then they follow leads that fit said narrative they won't go pull the string of something else that because it may unravel their narrative and that's how they're taught to do the job and to me I just don't think that's necessarily you know if you have something that goes oh shoot this is throwing what I think happened you know completely out of you know the water you know you should I would I would think I would go look at it not just follow what I think happened because you never know and I think I just but with this woman who spent 30 years I mean I just don't know how you could have talked to Kathy Woods and been like yeah yeah she did it you you can't tell me that I think they just put her away to put her away because it was easier right so end rant mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry um and I just don't know how he escaped so many times <laughs> That to me was was wild. I, I uh, it's insane. And then he, I mean, it was just funny. And then he escaped again. I mean, it's not funny, but you know what I mean. It's just it's just appallingly awful. I guess and all you can do is 
just kind of be like, what do you mean he keeps getting out? But yeah. 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 I mean, maybe it was easier to escape from prison back then. I don't know. Um, so yeah, but very interesting, very interesting case. But I think that uh, wraps us up for uh, today. And thank you guys for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about today's case, you can go ahead and head over to our Facebook group or find us on Instagram or Twitter at uh, Misconduct Podcast. We also want to give a shout out to the Blank Tapes who do our awesome intro and outro music. You can find them on SoundCloud and give some of their stuff a listen. It's actually really, really uh, good music. And uh, like we mentioned in the opening, we also launched our Patreon. Uh, we got a bunch of really cool stickers, and we ordered the mugs, and those are on the way, so we're really excited about that. So check out our Patreon site uh, for more information on how to get some of our cool merch. And thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volur xc For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.